0: So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking about culture and economy in the age of social media with Christian Fuchs, who is a professor of social media research at the University of Westminster in London. So welcome to the podcast. Hello, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Um, To kick off, it'd be really interesting to know a little bit about your intellectual and academic background and the sort of process that went into or was, was behind you writing this book.
1: Yes, so I'm a kind of a hybrid uh, researcher, uh, background in computer science, but also in the social sciences, and I try to bring this together somehow. Yeah, so I'm interested in how the computer, the internet, and so on shape society and is shaped uh, by it, this has been my long term uh, interest. And how specifically this book came about is when I was working on. Two other books, yeah one is like a popular introduction to social media called Social Media Critical Introduction, and the other one covers labor in the digital age and was called uh, digital labor and karl marx and I worked on these books i it sort of sort of resulted in a kind of intellectual debate really yeah about how to conceptualize the political economy of social media uh, and especially how it relates to labor uh, and uh, issues that relate to class. Uh, and so I found out there are a lot of issues that uh I should also deal with uh and and I sort of went deeper and deeper into theorizing uh, these issues uh and the outcome uh, was this book then yeah culture and the economy uh in the age uh, of uh, so of social media
0: so what's the main argument that the book is uh, is seeking to make
1: yes uh so basically it's about the very fundamentally about the relationship of culture and economy, and how we should think about this relationship of culture and economy. So you could say it re-engages with the old question of how base and superstructure are related uh, to each other. Probably the most, one of the most fundamental and most important question uh, in Marxist uh, theory in uh, critical theory. Uh, in uh, general, and uh, then it relates it to the whole realm of digital media uh, and social uh, 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 media. But why I think this is important is because my observation is that there's a tendency today in the contemporary uh, cultural economy, uh, you could say, where the boundaries between uh, categories that we traditionally have thought of being separate are are blurring, categories like culture and economy. Labor and leisure, work and play, production and consumption, the private uh, and the public, the home and the office, labor time uh, and leisure time, uh, and so on. So it's a kind of tendency. You could say that it also has to do with the rise, uh, partly, uh, of what we could now call an information economy uh, and information uh, work or cultural creative industries. uh, As some uh, people, uh, some people. Uh, 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 call it. So the question that I think we need to ask then uh, is that uh, if it's no longer possible to separate these uh, categories or in broad uh, terms, it, it's no longer possible to separate culture and economy, then maybe they have never been separate uh, in the first instance. And that's the kind of idea uh, that is basically underlying uh, the whole uh, book. Uh, and the first chapter set this more out in very general uh, terms. Uh, and then my specific interest uh, is Uh, Social media. So, in the uh, second uh, part uh, of the uh, book, you could say these are case studies of how to uh, apply, well, the approach of cultural materialism, you could say, uh, to the whole realm uh, of uh, social uh, media. One motivation also for writing this book is somehow that, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I'm a media communication and cultural scholar, digital media scholar. On the other hand, I consider myself to be a Marxist scholar. Yeah, but when I go to uh, conferences in Marxist theory, yeah, uh, then uh, I do not like that culture and communication are not taken seriously. Then you have all these interesting talks about uh, how to uh, conceptualize the contemporary crisis, how to think about the tendency of the profit rate to fall, which is how to think about financialization. Then you have one talk that considers culture and communication somehow, so somehow its uh, co- culture and communication is, is in this community, like historical materialism conference, for example, still considered as a kind of superstructure at the same time in our field of media communication cultural studies, I think that if you think of not just Marx himself but the whole history of twentieth century, Western Marxism uh, and how it has engaged with with culture, I feel it's uh, there's there's uh, there is too much uh, too much fear of uh, scholars engaging with this history. I mean, basically, with the argument that there is uh, that, that these approaches uh, are reductionist, they reduce culture uh, to uh, the economy uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, and so and, and so on. So I think there are also problems in uh, in, in in engaging with this, which. History of Marxist cultural and communication theory uh, within uh, our 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 field. Yeah, and well, uh, I think then you could say that whom this book addresses uh, is on the one hand uh, media and cultural scholars, and it's on the other hand critical theory scholars. Yeah, who don't tend to think so much about uh, cultural issues and communication uh, issues, and it uh, wants to well. Uh, engage with the question, uh, why does cultural materialism matter today uh, and how should we think about it?
0: And the way you both address those audiences, engage with that question, but also, I think, seek to kind of move uh, the theoretical debates on is to go back to Raymond Williams, who's an important influence in the book. And I wonder if you could say a bit about why Williams matters and and how you've uh, employed some of his ideas.
1: Yes, uh, so exactly. So Raymond Williams
0: is very important for this book, probably the thing who is
1: most important theoretically in the theoretical foundations uh, for the books. And just accidentally this Saturday, I was in Manchester at a conference called Raymond Williams Now. And it was very reassuring and really nice to see that there was a huge turnout. A lot of uh, colleagues uh, interested uh, in Raymond Williams Uh, uh, works, uh, very critical scholars applying Williams and uh, his uh, thinking uh, to contemporary uh, issues uh, that concern uh, culture uh, and uh, society. Uh, So I think that's very good. It shows us uh, that Williams' thought is very important uh, today. Uh, On the other hand, uh, I think Williams is too much treated as a humanities scholar uh, uh, still there. Of course, I mean, he, he wrote very interesting novels himself uh, in literature, like uh, The Volunties, Loyalties, and many other great books that uh, I really think are are fantastic. And he made a very huge contribution to literary uh, studies. But my observation also at the Raymond Williams Now Conference is that this is still the predominant discourse, and it's necessary, But I think there's more in Williams than just uh, literature. So the way I understand Williams is also as a cultural sociologist, uh, really. And I think that's that's my interest in Williams and the approach uh, of cultural materialism. And, you know, like uh, also making the same, Jim McGuigan has made the same observation. And that's why Jim uh, has uh, published uh, recently a collection of essays called uh, Raymond Williams uh, on Culture and Society. So that's more Raymond Williams, the cultural sociologist. And also, uh, where Jim has engaged in uh, a, a, a new edition uh, of, of Williams' 1983 book uh, Towards 2000, where he himself added like a, a new uh, chapter. So thanks to Jim that he, he did this. I'm interested in Raymond Williams' uh, approach of cultural materialism uh, and how uh, we can uh, make uh, use of it, because I think it helps us these dualisms that I was talking about, but especially the dualisms between work and communication uh, and labor and ideology, I think it helps us to deconstruct uh, these uh, uh, these dualisms. Because for example, one observation that I'm making that uh, people who study ideology, uh, especially if you think of critical discourse analysis, yeah, they analyze really how ideology works and yeah, it's a very excellent approach, but they don't ask the question who are those who produce ideologies, yeah? The cultural or ideological workers who produce them, or those who are critics, maybe, who can challenge them, yeah? So if you, if you look, I, I looked into one of the books by Norman Fairclough, yeah, it's like 500 pages about ideology, and searched for labor, yeah? And it's mentioned two times, only when he analyzes uh, the ideology of new labor, yeah? So that's kind of a uh, blind spot there, yeah? On the other hand, if you look at people who study uh, study uh, working conditions especially in uh, in uh, in labor study yeah, labor process studies and so on then ideology tends more to be a blind spot uh, 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 there so what I think is then really interesting is to ask uh, on the one hand uh, there is the ideology of labor on the one hand uh, nowadays just think of the Tories when Repeat on and on and on, saying we have to get people into work, yeah, and uh, getting them into work, uh, yeah, uh, not asking the question what quality uh, or, uh does work have, especially for young people, yeah, and that uh, given the fact that there's a lot of precarious labour uh, and so on. And I looked at some statistics recently that it's true that in in Britain a lot of jobs were created in the past couple of years, but the absolute majority of them are absolute. Bullshit jobs, yeah, <laughs> precarious jobs, yeah. People uh, on zero hours contracts, low wages, uh, and so uh, and so on. So that's the ideology of labour, uh, and then uh, on the other hand, there's the labour uh, of uh, of ideologies. And I think cultural materialism uh, is a very good approach uh, in order to uh, to understand how these uh, these uh, categories uh, that uh, make up the, uh, the the cultural economy. Uh, are related and that we should
0: think them uh, uh, together. Uh, one of the ways of thinking these things together, I think comes in, in the third chapter where you try and discuss uh, the idea of communication as a type of work and yes. as a form of work. Um, and, and how how is this the case and, and, and why is this the case?
1: Yes. Uh, so how can we think of, and can we think uh, of uh, culture and communication and the production uh, of it as uh, forms uh, of uh, work. So I think the, basically there are two approaches of how to think about cultural or information work. I personally prefer the, the term information work because it's a, it's a less value-laden term than creative work or cultural work because the problem that you have, for example, with term creative work or creative industries is that there's always an outside to it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, so typically, then you make a distinction between those who are creative and those who are not, crea- uh, not creative. Yeah? And uh, the issue uh, is then uh, also uh, that you could, that how I think about creativity is much more is a fundamental anthropological uh, feature uh, of, uh, of human activity as such. So whenever we produce something, we create some forms of use values that satisfy uh, human, uh, human, uh, human needs. So I would say all human activity, uh, in a sense, uh, is also uh, creative. Yeah? But of course, how the term creative cultural industries has come to be understood is that it involves all those uh, work that p- create some kind of content that is symbolic uh, and that is uh, meaningful. However, the question now uh, now is: In order for uh, for culture, information, or also digital content and so on, uh, to exist, what forms of work do we need? Uh, on the one hand, yeah, uh, and of course, like, uh, like uh, information work is usually expanding since uh, many uh, de- de- decades now. Uh, but there's also the whole um, physical infrastructure uh, that enables this content, uh, because. In an information society and, and economy, uh, content tends to be mediated. Yeah? Uh, so there are also uh, also means of production, circulation, and consumption technologies, yeah? cultural technologies, uh, digital uh, technologies that are uh, produced uh, and used. Uh, and uh, the argument that I want to make uh, is that uh, that these workers yeah? uh, who uh, produce Technologies uh, should also be included in the definition uh, of uh, information work. So basically, there you could either say that uh, information uh, work uh, is only seen as those who produce informational and symbolic content, or uh, you, uh, you could say it's the collective worker of all those workers who contribute with their labor uh, to the uh, to the uh, existence of information as content and information technologies that help to produce. Circulate uh, and consume uh, informational uh, content, and I think, and I think we should not think of these theoretical questions as abstract questions. This would be cultural idealism, really. Uh, the reason why to argue for such a broad understanding is really more a political issue, because in the end, I think it's all about uh, about the political question. In what kind of economy do we want to live? Yeah, what's the quality uh, of work? And definitely, uh, from a progressive political uh, perspective, uh, we want to improve the quality uh, of work. Yeah, uh, for for all people. Yeah, within what is in a narrow sense called the cultural industries, uh, and uh, and uh, outside of it. Yeah, and now I think the advantage of the broad understanding is that it can see. Uh, that there is really a a global uh, division of labour that has emerged uh, in the digital uh, and information uh, industries. So uh, it's really difficult to separate different forms of work that are well, uh, producing content uh, or the uh, industrial forms of manufacturing or even extractive forms uh, of uh, work, because in the end, they tend to work for the same kind of multinational uh, companies. And of course, I mean, what is specific also for culture is, is because of its specific properties uh, and co- economic qualities. Uh, it uh it it is a good that when treated uh, as a commodity and as an economic uh, uh a good uh it tends to result quite uh easily uh in highly uh, in highly concentrated industries so that you uh, in, that you have uh, a bunch of multinational companies uh controlling uh production in these uh, co- uh, in these uh, companies so in the end if we want to improve the quality of work i think we must we must avoid uh, avoid methodological and political nationalism somehow and see the global dimension uh, of uh, these uh, industries uh, really and in the end the question uh, then is also if uh, if the information workers in the world can somehow unite and show some form of solidarity in order to improve these uh, polit- uh, these qualities uh, of uh, of, uh, of work because clearly the problem is that uh, politics is predominantly made Within the nation state or its regional, whereas the economy uh, is global, yeah so this contradiction between uh, the global economy uh, and politics that is in the nation state the question is how to inter- how to intervene there and if you have a working class in the broad sense or political movements that only uh, argue a uh, struggle for improvements. Within a national framework uh yeah uh, it might not work uh that uh, uh that uh, that well because capital is really flexible and can uh globally outsource uh, la- uh, uh labor and it's also a question for trade unions yeah so if because for trade unions it's very difficult because they are very nationally oriented yeah but if trade unions and labor also just like capital uh start to organize uh globally then this can strengthen their uh their uh, uh, their uh, their power, and I think uh, from this political perspective, uh, this broad understanding uh, of information work uh, is a be- is a be- is a is a better approach. Uh, and uh, it somehow also comes back to this uh, Raymond Williams approach of cultural materialism, because he says, Williams says we should avoid cultural idealism, which would just mean uh, that uh, if you think uh, of piano music and the way it's being. Produced and maybe even uh, sold, that just the piano player, uh, creative artist, uh, is uh, an information worker uh, or is a cultural worker, whereas in a broad sense uh, it would then mean that also the piano maker uh, and the composer of music uh, are uh, cultural and information uh, uh, workers, and that what we would hope for uh, is a trade union if they organize collectively, uh, where they are all brought together. Yeah? And uh, of course, there are also tendencies. Uh, nowadays, that there is a kind of labor union convergence, uh, the different uh, information workers in different industri- uh, in- industries organize together, which makes them also more powerful in the end.
0: The the examples uh, you use in, in, in the later parts of the book address that directly, and, and you, you develop this idea of the international division of di- yes. uh, digital labor, the IWD L. Um, in chapter six and you give examples um, of of this more kind of global political economy in chapter seven. And I wonder if you could, um, I I guess, sketch out um, some more concrete examples of what you were talking about under the umbrella of where it is that information communication technologies come from, where it is that I I guess our ability um, in the West, for example, to be on an iPhone using Facebook or Twitter, um, you know, to surf the web and stuff actually is dependent on a much broader, um, chain of uh, production yes so what I'm observing like in political discussions is like two extreme positions yeah Uh,
1: on the one hand uh, people who just focus on how to politically organize or unionize people in the West yeah who work in the Cultural industries in a narrow sense, yeah? young people who are working precariously, and you can have ideas like that they should uh, form cooperatives uh, and uh, and so on, and to just focus on like the national or maybe European dimension of it. Yeah? And on the other hand, people who are interested in how labor in developing countries uh, works, how outsourced labor uh, is experienced in precarious forms uh, of labor, and the question what can be. Uh, done about it. Yeah? And, uh, the approach of the, I mean that goes back to the, to the late 70s or early 1980s really of the uh, international division uh, of labour uh, sees that these forms of labour are interconnected really. Yeah? So there are huge multinational companies uh, de- developing uh, who in order to maximise their pro- uh, their profits are outsourcing uh, labour uh, and are playing uh, out uh, workers in different countries uh, against uh, each, uh, each, uh, each, uh, each other, uh, and of course, what we can generally uh, see within within the information uh, economy, uh, the digital uh, media industries are very important, both in terms of employment and especially in terms uh, of uh, value added. So, I think the digital media industry really, most countries, when you look up the statistics, you can see digital media industries uh, is uh, uh, in terms of value added. Very crucial for this uh, industry, just like advertising, public relations, uh, and 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 so on. And of course, digitization affects all of our our lives. uh, And uh, therefore, the question is: What forms of labor are involved uh, in the production uh, of digital media uh, technologies uh, and digital uh, content? And with Raymond Williams, we could say it's then very uh, important to start like uh, really at the very foundation. Which is the question, like uh, the laptop that uh, is on the table here, yeah? our mobile phones. Where do they come from? Yeah? So first, uh, there, uh, there is extractive work. Uh, 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 people who work uh, in mining industries that extract minerals that then go into our digital uh, tools, and it's this phenomenon. Uh, of so-called conflict minerals in Africa, especially uh, the Congo, where people work under slave-like conditions. So, uh, I mean, you would think of that in in modern capitalist society, we are all double free wage workers, uh, but we are not. So there are around, uh, if you look at statistics, around 30 million slaves in the world uh, world who are not double double free in Marx's sense Uh, But who are, uh, whose bodies and minds are the property uh, of uh, someone. So basically, it means if they don't go into these minds, they are killed uh, and being uh, shot. So that's a very unsettling physical foundation uh, of uh, the digital media uh, uh, industries. Then, uh, in the second step, uh, if you have these minerals, uh, out of the minerals, components are produced. The components are assembled uh, into uh, digital media technologies. Most of the assemblage work takes place uh, in China, so China, plays a very uh, important role uh, in the manufacturing uh, industries within the uh, international division uh, of uh, labor. And, I mean, China's economy is somehow also uh, peculiar because on the one hand, uh, there's a huge growth uh, of the Chinese uh, uh, GDP, which is partly based uh, on the fact that uh, China invests a lot in the build-up of an urban infrastructure. Uh, On the other hand, Chinese economy is is to a very large extent export oriented, especially in two uh, sectors: uh, electronics and hardware on the one hand, uh, and clothes uh, on the other hand. And so, a form of digital uh, labour uh, is also the, the, the workers in Foxconn and other uh, and other uh, large uh, transnational uh, companies, uh, where uh, especially. Young urban uh, migrants uh, in uh, industrial zones uh, in chi- in China and the very hard really traditional tailorist working conditions uh, you could say uh, assemble these uh, te- these technologies so they have very long working hours uh, low wages uh, rather unregulated forms of of, of work they are only yellow unions or they are rather ununionized uh, and uh, and uh, and so on so these are industrial and extractive forms uh, of labor but then of course there are uh, newer forms of jobs uh, that create content or also that create software uh, and here there are also two different uh, forms on the one hand uh, if you look at software industry to a certain extent uh, is uh, uh, is also, also makes use of, of outsourcing especially outsourcing on the one hand to Ireland uh, on the other hand uh, to India yeah, so there is a a new kind of middle class in India, developing of uh, software uh, engineers. It's also a global dimension, but on average, and uh, the work uh, to, to the largest uh, ext- ex- extent for Western uh, companies, yeah they to their coding basically. And on average, statistics shows the the average salaries are just ten percent of the salary of a uh, of, of a software engineer maybe in the in the United States. Then on that's one form of software engineering. Then you have other software uh, engineers. Uh, who, for example, work for Google yeah or for other uh, large software uh, uh, companies? I think if you look at their working conditions, it's more the story that is quite uh, that is quite characteristic for the cultural and creative industries uh, at uh, at uh, at large. So these software engineers, they really like their job. They think it's a form uh, of uh, of uh, of cre- of, cre- of creativity uh, on the other hand they work very long uh, very long hours their uh, social life uh, suffers under it uh, and so on probably that if you compare people who work more in art and culture in the narrow sense, if you compare them to software engineers, the one difference uh, is that uh, that uh, in terms of of income, uh, people in, uh, in the arts, uh, are, um, tend to be more struggling, yeah, where software engineers tend to have very high salaries, yeah, that's the one, uh, but in terms, uh, in, 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 uh, but in terms of working patterns, working long hours, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and so on, it's pretty much comparable, yeah, uh, so, uh, and what is also interesting is the kind of culture, the workplace culture developing in, uh, Google and other kind of, uh, companies, because they, here you can really see the, the convergence between labor and play, because if you look at the Googleplex, yeah, it's a kind of playground almost. Yeah, people can spend their uh, their leisure time there. Uh, there are sports grounds around uh, there. And if you've seen some of these uh, images, yeah. Partly, it does not really look like an office. It looks really like uh, a playground, which in the end also means people spend more time uh, in, the, uh, in the office. And so what, what Google and other companies hope for is, is also uh, that people then work longer hours uh, and that, uh, that there's more job satisfaction, satisfaction so that they also work more productively. Uh, and then there are also all forms of work that are really not possible without the internet that are based on uh the on the uh, on, uh, on the internet so uh i mean i think for example i'm thinking for example uh, of uh the online freelancing platforms uh, that have become I and mean, we know that in the in the media cultural and digital industries uh, the largest share of uh of uh, freelancers uh, is really working uh, in these industries, the largest relative share yeah? and of course how uh, how these freelancers nowadays tend to find work yeah? uh, is via online freelancing platforms. I mean freelancing is much older than this yeah, but there are specific uh, forms of freelancing now developing that make use uh, of these uh, platforms uh, and uh, on average uh, you can see you can see that uh, the wages that are paid via these platforms tend to be lower via traditional professional organization. The problem, again, is one that, uh, that uh, the regulation of working conditions is via the nation state, yeah, by, whereas the economy is global and also the Internet uh, is global. Uh, so if you think of Desk and Elance, for example, yeah, it's a U.S. company. There were two companies, but now they were merged. But then the question, should there be a minimum wage for online freelancing where is it to be decided, really? Yeah? And you have a global workforce competing uh, for uh, for jobs against each other. And I think there was a kind of voluntary move by Oland uh, or e to introduce a minimum wage of three U.S. dollars per hour, which is really for, for British standards, that's very low because our minimum wage now is, what it, is it £6.75 or £85, yeah, something like Something uh, like this. So it creates a lot of, uh, of problems then. And the idea of digital labor then tries to engage with all of these questions uh, and also uh, to see that these different forms of work are globally uh, interconnected. Uh, I mean, they are, they are very different uh, on, the one, on, the, on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, they tend to, uh, to produce value in a kind of interconnected uh, net labor network uh, for the same kind uh, of uh, multinational uh, companies.
0: The, the final area of this international vision of digital yeah. labour, um, which is something really that comes up slightly earlier in the book um, and then is played forward in a comparison between the US and China, it, it, it is this kind of um, presumption or the, uh, I suppose, the productiveness of the consumer. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly Facebook is the, the obvious example, but um, you have examples um, from Chinese uh, social media platforms as well. Yeah. I, I wonder if you could talk through um, – ideas about um, particularly economic rents um, mm-hmm. discuss with, with with reference to Marx the, the idea of Facebook's uh, business model being about or being engaged with the idea yeah. of rent.
1: Yes uh, so basically in it's a very complex debate about digital labor and how to theorize its, uh, its economy really that has developed in the past couple of years and I'm very Deep in this, in, in these discussions really, yeah. It can seem a bit esoteric sometimes, uh, to people who are not experts in, uh, in Marx Capital Volume 1, 2, and uh, 3. But basically it's about the question how to use Marx concepts of rent and or productive labor in order to understand Uh, the political economy uh, of digital uh, labor, yeah. And now rent uh, is uh, a concept that Marx especially uses in Capital Volume 3. Basically, rent means uh, renting something that money is paid for the use uh, of a good uh, for, that you use for a limited uh, time uh, period yeah so just think of the london property market yeah a huge class of rentiers has uh, developed that controls property uh, in uh, in, uh, in in london uh, and is renting it out uh, for extremely high prices this is helped by uh, by the deregulation uh, of the housing market uh, it's privatization and also its financial uh, its financial. Uh, uh, its financialization and it creates huge social problems uh, as we as, as we know. So in these terms, you could say uh, rent is an important category uh, still today. However, what is the, uh, the important thing about this category of renting is that typically you rent out goods that do not continuously have to be produced and reproduced. Yeah. Uh, so like uh, that's why Marx uses it especially uh, in, uh, in 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 terms of uh, in in. Uh, in, in 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 terms of uh, of, of housing assets, uh, yeah, uh, and natural uh, pro, uh, uh, pro, properties, and that's also how David Harvey has taken up this idea because he is interested uh, in questions of space uh, and urban uh, socio, socio sociology uh, and uh, so on. The question is now: when we are dealing with information and culture and digital content, does here the uh, idea of rent? Uh, help us in, in my opinion it does not help us because if you compare it uh with houses yeah or uh, or uh, or uh, this kind uh, of uh, of, uh, of 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 assets if you own a house yeah uh, then first it must be built by the builders you have some form of uh, of reconstruction from time to time uh, going go, going on but in the end it's a it's more a kind of very uh, it's not a very dynamic kind of uh, of good uh, it's a very fixed, immobile uh, kind of uh, good. If it's once there, yeah, it will give you a rent for a, for a long time. You don't have to continue, you don't have to year by year rebuild the house in order to set it. Yeah. Now, if you think of Facebook, Google, Twitter, and, uh, so, on, and so on, some people are saying that's quite comparable to these kind uh, of goods. And I think it's not comparable because I think they are really very dynamic uh, goods uh, that depend on the continuous production uh, of data uh, and content by the users themselves. Yeah, and this makes them very uh, different. So if you just have Facebook and all information that is now uh, there, and all users leave tomorrow, uh, it's, it's completely valueless uh, because the, what is really the interesting thing is the continuous use uh, of uh, of these platforms and the continuous production. That's also this idea of presumption comes in that the consumers become producers, uh, and uh, that's also by the you could say they are workers and digital workers in the sense of continuously producing attention, producing content, producing social relations, communicating there. And, of course, the important thing is that uh, Google and Facebook are not communications companies. They are the world's largest advertising uh, companies. Yeah? So I'm specifically interested in the critique uh, of the advertising uh, and consumer uh, culture that has developed uh, now, nowadays, nowadays, and that it really forms the context uh, of contemporary uh, social media. So that's why I'm more interested in the idea of productive labor uh, that also Marx has uh, elabor- elabor- elaborated. And it's also a complex category somehow, yeah, because he has three levels of how to define uh, productive uh, labor, yeah. Uh, but really, the interesting level here for me is just the third one uh, where, where Marx introduces in. Capital Volume One, Chapter Sixteen: The Idea of the Collective Worker. Where he says, uh, in, in modern economy, it become, tends to become ever more a networked economy. Yeah, so that the value that is being produced and that uh, is objectified uh, in uh, commodities uh, is produced by a whole network uh, of different forms uh, of uh, of worker that contribute uh, to the production of the value added uh, that uh, is. Uh, objectified uh, in this uh, com- in this uh, in this uh, commodity. Yeah. So now, if what we can observe is that then there is an interconnection, really, of paid and unpaid labor, labor that uh, is produced, uh, that is conducted in the sphere of production and in the sphere of circulation. Uh, and uh, there is also this tendency that consumers tend to become producers, which breaks down the boundary between uh, economy uh, and uh culture, and I think this is exactly uh, this, this changing the landscape of culture and economy is exactly the context of what we are what is what we are witnessing uh, in the social media economy. So just think of the way we are using social media. We are using them uh, at the workplace. Yeah? We are using them uh, privately. We are using them politically in civil society. But all our activities and contacts converge on specific profiles. Yeah. Uh, so the boundaries between different forms of, of information activities, yeah, and between our different social roles are, are really uh, collapsing. And it's therefore it's very difficult nowadays, in some situations, yeah, to distinguish what is work time, what is leisure time. Uh, to distinguish between what is productive and unproductive uh, labor. So the tendency uh, is, unfortunately, is nowadays that a lot of uh, what we have traditionally in a Taylorist, Fortist economy have thought of as our leisure time is becoming integrated in and becoming a productive labor time uh, also, uh, also uh, in itself. Yeah. And so what I'm, this is sometimes misunderstood. What I'm arguing against is an orthodox form of Marxism that has an an outdated idea of what the working class is and conceives the working class as the industrial workers that were dominant a hundred years ago, Yeah, uh, that were the the paid industrial proletariat. And I'm arguing uh, for a more kind of open Marxism that sees that the economy uh, is on the one hand becoming more cultural, more digital, and that uh, forms of unpaid work and forms of precarious work are really also very uh, important in the way value uh, is being uh, created. So, I mean, the problem that uh, still persists, but it's getting better for the trade unions is still, should freelancers be considered to be part of the working class? Of course they should, but, I mean, uh, when this debate started, then first trade unions were dismissing the freelancers and saying, well, they are capitalists and so on. (laughs) And I think that's that's the outdated version. On the other hand, I would include them in a broad category uh, of the working class uh, today, but then it all and these debates. I mean, since the 1970s about whom to consider as a productive worker, worker, they have uh, broadened out. If you think of uh, of Marxist and socialist feminism in the 1970s, who were really putting on the agenda uh, the unpaid houseworkers and how important their work is really for for society at large, but but particularly also for. Uh, for the existence uh, of capitalism, then this was a shift in how to conceptualize productive worker to also include uh, the house workers and of course, then demands were political demands were made by the feminists uh, like uh, wages for housework uh, and uh, so on and then there was also the kind of post colonial debate uh, starting. Uh, that, uh, that the developing countries, especially in this international division of labor, are also exploited uh, colonies uh, of capitalism that produce a lot of value that is then exported uh, into the West. Yeah? And of course, uh, I mean the, the increase of foreign direct investment uh, levels uh, in uh, developing uh, countries is exactly this uh, this uh, this phenomenon. So you could and. Then a third tendency was also to see that, uh, that the cultural economy and, uh, plays a more important role, that uh, advertising uh, plays a very important role in the capitalist uh, organization uh, of this cultural uh, eco- uh, e- economy, and that we should therefore also consider, well, those consumers who, uh, who produce commodity in the advertising industries audience commodity or now concerning Facebook and so on, uh, it would be a kind of data commodity that they are also workers uh, in a sense. But if you include all of this and more, the the freelance workers uh, and so on, then you arrive at a pretty uh, pretty broad understanding of how value is being produced uh, today, uh, that all of these workers are also productive. Uh, productive uh, uh, workers, which then brings up the question, if, the political question, uh, again, mm-hmm. if we want to have a progressive civil society that struggles for a better quality uh, of uh, of work, better uh, better conditions of human existence in contemporary uh, society, and if you want to have progressive political parties, and in the end also the question, what is the left today, really, yeah? That then the left must really renew itself yeah and i think it can do this also by reaching out to all these uh, groups uh, in uh, in uh, in 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 society at the same time i think the left has not done this to a significant uh extent uh, uh, today and that's why I think these very abstract debates going back to questions of productive labor uh, and so on uh, in the end can uh can also help us to to, to to ask the question, how does a contemporary left wing movement and a left wing political party uh look like? How should it look like today? And I think that's especially important in the situ- in the conjunction and in the situation that we are now in 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 the world, in Europe but also in Britain, because now saturism is turning into Cameronism. Yeah? And I think that will be the key political challenge in the uh, next five years will be how to challenge Cameronism, really. And I was recently going back to the writings, uh, on the one hand, Raymond Williams, on the other hand, also Stuart Hall, uh, of how to understand saturism, Yeah, Because uh, I think it really matters because now the key political question, the key political struggle is really, what is Cameronism? How do we challenge it? and of course there were debates about Stuart Hall's uh, concept and so on yeah, by Bob Jessop and so on uh, and others, but I think the key uh, contribution that Stuart Hall and others and also Raymond Williams and so on, was really to understand satirism also as an ideological uh, f- phenomenon of authoritarian populism uh, and uh, so on and also the understanding that the rise of satirism had to do with the failure of the left, uh, the weakness of the, of the left, and I think that's exactly what is happening now, that really the uh, the, 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 the rise of Cameronism yeah, uh, and uh, its strength also has to do with the weakness of the left yeah, the kind of orthodoxies of the left it also has to do with the Labour Party and the fact that the Labour Party probably is also such a right uh, and uh, too, mu- uh, too much uh, and it has not, has not offered a popular alternative uh, vision really yeah? so I think when Nicola Sturgeon was observing yeah, uh, what Ed Miliband had in mind was a form of of, uh, of, of Tory, light, Toryism, light. Yeah? I think she was right, and it would be the and the key question is now: Are these popular alternatives? Can they be constructed by a renewed uh, left, or will we end up uh, with uh, with the whole political spectrum moving ever more towards the right? As was the ten the tendency uh, today. To uh, since, since a lot of uh, a lot of decades, not offering uh, a vision uh, for an uh, alternative, and ending up what uh, Tariq Ali in his new book calls the extreme center. Yeah? Uh, the extreme center, in the in the uh, in the sense uh, of uh, what was the left in former times, has shifted now more towards the, towards the center uh, and uh, and, and, the, and the center right, so that uh, they all speak the same kind uh, of uh, of, uh, of language. So I think also nowadays. The situation we are now in globally, in Europe also, because uh, Europe and European identity is also uh, in uh, in uh, a crisis. And, of course, the challenge to Europe is the right-wing challenge, or the Tories, you could say, because, like Setscher, they think Europe is too socialist in the sense. Eh? At the same time, of course, it just means what Europe is actually is also a neoliberal project that is being challenged, but also in the European South, by like Greece and Spain, uh, and so on. So it's a challenge to what Europeanness and uh, European identity uh, really uh, re, uh, re, uh, re, really really is. So that's at the European level, and uh, at the national level uh, in Britain, I think uh, the challenge uh, will really be can there be alternatives uh, to Cameronism? And for the left, I think these debates then, yeah, to whom do they speak really? Yeah, uh, what kind of politics do they do? Just like in the 80s when
0: Stuart Hall was pointing this out, also play a role today. So, will you be working on that in future projects, or are you going to be doing something completely different?
1: Mm. So, I continue to do a lot of work on everything that relates to social media, digital labour, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, but uh, probably, I'm working also on three other projects now. Yeah, one is uh, it has to do with Marx Capital, because there are all these Marx works are now seen since the crisis started, really in two thousand and eight, is by a lot of people, by being interesting today. yeah. But I think we should avoid a kind of orthodoxy. The, 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 the political solutions for all the difficult political questions that we have today is not written down in Marx mm. still. yeah. But there are some, it can be a kind of, uh, reading Marx can allow us to ask questions that he was asking in a contemporary context. However, all the kind of Marx is very difficult to read. yeah. So you need a kind of uh, of uh, of complementary literature to it. But all these books, like I'm thinking, for example, of David Harvey's Companions uh, to Marx Capital, they completely ignore questions of technology, the digital, culture, communication. So I thought such a book has to be written that helps us in a in non-orthodox, uh, open Marxist manner to engage with uh, Marx and how it relates to, well, the cultural economy, the information society, and so on. So one of what I did recently is uh, to work on a Book called Marx in the Information Age. Uh, with The sub- subtitle uh, is "Reading Marx Capital Volume One from a Media and Communication Studies Perspective." So that will be coming out next year. Yeah, uh, that's one of my uh, interests. Uh, a second interest is that I was interested in uh, how to use specific philosophers that we are normally not using uh, in media and cultural theory. Uh, how can we make use of their uh, of of their approaches? So newer forms of of critical uh, theory. So I was interested in Slavoj Zizek's uh, work uh, on the dialectic uh, and Hegel uh, and have engaged with uh, with this. I was interested in newer debates about Heidegger, uh, because there's if you think of 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 philosophy today and also of media and cultural theory, there's a lot of use of Heidegger actually. And at the same time, that these black notebooks were published by Heidegger uh, that showed it, uh, that uh, that what awful uh, anti-Semitic ideology he really uh, had. This has res- resulted in a lot of new debates uh, about can we make use of Heidegger really? Uh, and uh, I think it's important to engage with these questions. So I have been working on this, and then I have been working on uh, also on the question how we can we make use uh, of. Uh, of Georg Lukacs uh, approach uh, but whenever you talk about Lukacs then people talk about history and class consciousness yeah and i think that's a good book but actually there's an overlooked book by Lukacs uh, called the ontology of social being it was his last book before he died really and it was published like in german in two volumes 1500 pages only like 200 pages have been translated into english yeah and this is really a very fine uh, social theory, you could say, where he also engages with questions of culture and ideology in a new, refreshing sense. And I was interested in how can we take up this uh, today. And then I have engaged also with Axel Honneth's mm-hmm. uh, work, because Honneth, well, I think internationally he's a little bit overlooked still, but you could say he's the new Habermas in, yeah. in German critical uh, theory. With all these debates about uh, – he works on the theory of recognition – and also, uh, on, on the one hand, uh, and he has been in this debate with Nancy Fraser about redistribution and recognition. Uh, and he also has taken up the idea of reification. Yeah? And I'm thinking of how to apply this to media and culture. So these are philosophical uh, debates. That's my second uh, contemporary interest. And now my big newest interest is just coming out of political necessity, uh, as I was just uh, mentioning. I think in Britain it's necessary in order to ask the question, what is Cameronism? Yeah, what is it uh, all about? What does it mean for contemporary uh, society? Uh, how does it this? How does its discourse really work? Yeah, uh, and what can be done against it? Yeah. So I think just from 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 a social and cultural theory perspective, I think it can be worthwhile that we go back to the discussions in the eighties yeah? about what is satirism uh, really because. Stuart Hall, yeah, Raymond Williams, uh, Bob Jessop and others, they were exact, exactly asking this question, question in the 80s. when I mean, satirism uh, was, bec- was becoming such a huge phenomenon. Yeah? Now, after these elections, now in May, it's clear that uh, Cameronism is not just a temporary uh, project. it It's most likely it will be at least a 10-year project. Yeah, And, of course, it's grounded in satirism. Yeah? Uh, or David Cameron himself says uh, that Margaret Thatcher uh, had a huge impact uh, on his uh, on his uh, thinking. So th- we should trace out what are the continuities and discontinuities between Cameronism and Thatcherism. I think the idea of authoritarian populism can help us uh, in this in this uh, respect. Uh, also, the engagement with uh, with Cameronism uh, as a form of ideology is quite important because uh, I mean it is. It is interesting if you look at the demographics uh, of uh, of these uh, elections, and I think that the, I looked at the uh, Ipsos Mori statistics uh, for it. Uh, yeah, and of course, the middle and upper class uh, tend to vote for the Tories. Yeah, but what is in- really interesting is this demographic group C2, as it's called, yeah, which are the, the classical blue-collar workers. Really, yeah, and I think that that's really con- a contested group because they equally. Voted for uh, Labour and for the Tories. I think something like thirty-one percent each. Nineteen percent in this group voted uh, for the UK Independence Party, uh, which is so they are also the, the largest social group uh, voting for the for, for UKIP. And then, on the other hand, the voter turnout in this group is extremely low. It's fifty-one percent, which also means fifty percent of the people in this group are completely disillusioned and saying I'm not represented uh, by by any. Uh, by anyone, but it's then interesting that more than fifty percent of those that voted voted for right-wing parties, the UKIP and uh, the conservatives. So must, the left must then also ask itself: What are the failures that we cannot convince these people yeah? and, and others? Yeah? Uh, and how can we how can we win them back? Uh, on the on the one hand, and what kind of counter narrative can we, uh, can, we uh, can we can we can we develop? So that's something I'm interested in now, and, I'm, and I try to connect this to my interest in social media because I'm especially interested in how the how the ongoing debates or the debates that you will see in the next two years. And I think it's really a question about identity uh, and immigration. About uh, well, the question: What is British identity? What is Englishness today? Uh, what is European identity? What is global identity? The question of uh, migrant workers yeah, and what kind of role they have in contemporary uh, Britain. Uh, how uh, these struggles about identity uh, and uh, recognition and its economic dimensions, because if it's about migration, it's always also an economic issue uh, having to do with with jobs, housing, public, uh, public services, how they are expressed in public discourse, but now in politics also when these discourses are expressed, Uh, then social media also plays a role, yeah? And how discourses are analyzed on social media predominantly is now via big data analysis, yeah? Which is a huge thing, yeah? Uh, Big data analysis in a quantitative sense, yeah? That people do sentiment analysis, Mm -hmm. predictions of elections, uh, and so on. And I think that's uh, there's actually something going wrong because it's completely quantitative. These are large-scale computing methods, yeah? Uh, And uh, I think it does not... uh, some of these results are quite interesting but they always remain quantitative sometimes they are trivial there's an election debate on the BBC between the main candidates people analyze about what do people tweet and then their result is that while the candidates were discussing immigration people were tweeting about immigration and that so it's, uh, that's not very meaningful, I think. But the question is then, for example, how do this, these discourses about identity, immigration and so on, how are they expressed in 140 characters uh, on Twitter? Yeah? How do MPs uh, tweet about these uh, things? Yeah, because, and because Twitter, even more than Facebook, has become a kind of news medium in itself. Journalists, when they look for what is happening in the political world, they go on Twitter. Yeah, a lot of uh, so a lot of people get. Uh, for a lot of people, it has become the primary source of political uh, information. Yeah, so I'm interested in how social media then is expressed there. But from a methodological point of view, I think uh, we need to uh, further develop critical discourse analysis uh, as an approach because critical discourse analysis, as some people who are with, who come from this field say, somehow has missed whole emergence of the internet. So they still tend to predominantly uh, analyze when it comes to the media discourses on television and in newspapers, which have a huge influence. But somehow, for example, the television discourses are now mediated uh, with the discourses on social media. Because while these electoral debates and so on are going on, people are tweeting about it and so on. So it can be quite an interesting uh, idea to, uh, to look at the discourses the way ideology uh, works uh, on social media and also how it's contested, uh, contested there. Uh, and for this, I think we need more, uh, we need definitely social media as a data source and collecting all of this data is a challenge uh, in itself. But then I think we need new qualitative approaches for how to analyze uh, this, uh, this, uh, this data. So it's also a methodological uh, challenge, uh, really. So on the one hand, it's a, a kind of project for analyzing what is politically happening. On the other hand, it's also a further development of social science uh, methods that is too much focused on quantitative analysis uh, at the moment uh, and where the qualitative dimension uh, is really uh, missing. So I think that's kind of approach of critical qualitative analysis of data that comes out of uh, social media, and that is situated in uh, the analysis of the political challenges that uh, lie uh,
0: ahead in Britain, uh, Europe, uh, and the world uh, today. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory, when we were talking about culture and economy in the age of social media by Christine Fox, published by Ravage.